Welcome to Net Profit, a podcast and newsletter about the business of growing women's professional football, also known as soccer to some of us. The aim is to share ideas, case studies, and best practices within the women's football business community on developing and monetizing the fan bases of our clubs. The podcast features experts from within football, as well as many others from across sports, entertainment, and consumer brand marketing. I'm Eric Cohen-Peckham from Women's Football Group. If you like this show, subscribe in your podcast app. To keep up with new episodes and get extra resources, news curation, and commentary, join the newsletter at womensfootballgroup.com slash netprofit. In this episode, I am joined by Lindy Nguenya, the founder and managing director of Sisu Sport Management. Sisu is a London-based sport agency representing female as well as some male footballers from numerous countries competing in leagues around the world. She has a pulse on league development and player trading across many, many countries. So I'm keen for her to share her analysis on what she is seeing. Hey, Lindy, welcome to the show. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me on. As a starting point, I'd love for you to explain how you ended up where you are right now in women's football, building this agency. It's not where you originally set off in your career. Yeah, that's a good question. How, how the hell did I end up here? I think would be a better way to frame the question. So look, my background is I grew up in that generation where I was sports mad as a kid. Any sport really would do. I'm a huge football fan and a Tottenham Hotspur fan for anyone who needs to know growing up. But unfortunately, as a girl, I didn't really have access to being able to play sport. We didn't have football at school and it was very much frowned upon. It wasn't seen as a sport for girls to play. So it's only really when I got to university at sort of what we'd call varsity level that things were starting to change on the sports front. And I was really able to then actively start participating in sport. And by that time, football's a skilled sport, very much a skill-driven sport. And, you know, I'm, I hadn't had that foundation. So I was nowhere near being a half-decent player. But I found myself to be quite a good rugby player, mainly because, you know, I can run at people and knock them over. And it's a general idea about not having a a pain threshold. So I ended up playing rugby at university. I left university and played club rugby and combined that with a career, first of all, in the military. And then I went into the city as a trader for a number of banks over here in London. And yeah, I combined the rugby with that. And that for me cemented my desire to be involved in sport. It got to, I think I'd been trading for about 10 years, you know, with, with going back to like 2008 now the great financial crisis or the GFC, as those of us in the know call it. And after that period, I was just sort of sitting there essentially asking myself, what the hell am I doing? I fell into a city trading job after the army. It was one of those classics that you've been in the army, you're good at numbers, uh, right? Why didn't you try trading? It was nothing to do with anything I'd planned to do in my life. So yeah, I think that sort of epiphany, oh wait, made me actually actively start to want to take ownership of my life path and my career path so that's when I in my head at least contended that I wanted to get myself actively involved in sport I felt the business side was the side that suited my experience and also what kind of got me out of bed in the morning and between for the next sort of three four years I really worked towards 2013 which was a year that I, I left the city and I started up the agency CC Sports Management and CC Sports Management was a child of my own experience you know playing rugby 
combining that with work, being a female or trying to be a female athlete um, as well, tagged in with all the, you know, the societal expectations and views around being a female playing sport. All of that was bundled into one thing, into my CSU sports management company. And our mission has always been to provide a platform for athletes, footballers from underserved parts of the football world to the broader football stage. That's pretty much how the journey started. You fairly quickly built an international agency as opposed to just focusing on talent within the UK. What drove that and and caused you to keep focusing on that expansion as opposed to going deeper domestically? If you take it back to the mission of the company, like I said, is providing a platform for, for football talent from underserved markets. So those markets from the outset I defined as as women's football um, back in 2013. Really, apart from Sweden and Germany, we didn't really have any established kind of women's leagues. The WSL was like 18 months in its inception. African football, which everyone has said for many years, is an area where there's a huge talent pool across the whole continent, but limited pathways and opportunities. And a goat, so... Once I sort of had those sort of talent pool markets, then I didn't really have much choice but to have an international strategy. Being based here in the UK, there was no real professional league to start off with. As I mentioned, the WSL was embryonic and the men's game was a game that I would say it's effectively like a cartel. There's a number of big, super powerful agencies so it didn't see didn't seem sensible to me to focus the energies there where the opportunities were, you know, the areas where we thought that there was a good talent pool. And I had to take the view, and I did believe in the view, that these areas would grow because they inevitably had to grow, both women's sport and also if you look at the demographics around Africa and the talent pool there, that clearly over time is going to be a huge access point for talent. For the professional game. So that's the long-term view that I took. And it, very much building off of your uh, investor experience before, perhaps, of, of that mindset, entrepreneur and investor uh, perspective of focusing on a small but rapidly growing market as where to build a business and rise, uh, rise with it. What was your initial, uh, initial signing on the women's side? Was it only after you left your job in the city or you, you started representing athletes and developing this side of your business before going all in? No, as you probably know from being around financial services, being a trader is, is not something that you can probably have a side hustle alongside with. I was a market maker in one of the big banks at the time I was at Credit Suisse. I was on the credit desk and that's a 24-7 role. So it was literally a big financial and personal risk of finishing my career, which was by then a 12-year career in the city, and totally pivoting and starting CC Sports Management. So I put together a plan in terms of how that would look. So the first, because as a to be successful in this the football business, you need to have a network, you need to have knowledge and some of that knowledge will build up from experience and you need to have obviously a little bit of luck. So I knew that once I'd gone all in to the sports management side, there would be a period of time where I would have to develop those areas. 
So it wasn't a case of instant revenue generation. However, what I decided to do was have a little bit of a step-by-step process. The first couple of years was really about understanding, learning the business. Back in the time I started, you still had to do the old FIFA agents exam. So that was a very good way of actually learning about the football industry, learning about the regs and giving me the basic knowledge around the football industry. But then you still have to learn the football business and the network side of it was just involved a lot of traveling around, meeting with clubs, meeting with other agents and really getting that foundation in place. So I would say from 2013 to 15, that was really the process. And then after that 15 onwards is when I really started to then actively bring players onto the books. And my first significant female player signing wasn't great because, um, give you a long story short, I went to the women's AFCON, so the African Continental Championships for women's African national teams in Namibia in 2014. I watched a number of countries play, like Nigeria, Namibia, etc. I spotted three players that I thought would be future stars. This was obviously in the run-up to the next World Cup, which was going to be in 2015. So I saw, I... I did great. I signed those players. I signed them to rep contracts and I was looking forward to the World Cup and being able to really capitalize on their performances. And they had a good World Cup. It was two players for one of the African countries. Like I said, they remain nameless. They had a great World Cup. I didn't hear from them. They wouldn't pick up my calls. And then subsequently I found out that they basically joined clubs in the States through another agent, totally dropped my contract, ignored my contract and look, I could have gone down maybe the legal route and stuff like that. But to me, it was just a learning lesson and good luck to the players. They're both still professional players. They're still playing for really great clubs. But yeah, those were my first two female player signings. And um, it wasn't ultimately the most successful ones for myself. Bring up Nigeria and some of the other countries. You were at the World Cup in Australia in August. A lot of people were really surprised by how well a number of countries who really weren't on people's radar performed, you know, Nigeria, Morocco, Jamaica, South Africa, given your very global perspective, having a pulse on how talent is developing across different countries. Were you surprised by how well they performed? Does this represent a big shift in where people are looking for talent and recognizing it developing? First of all, in answer to your question, was I surprised? I No, I wasn't surprised at all. I think that the level of talent in a lot of the African countries is huge. So a lot of it is around opportunity and having that that showcase for that talent to emerge. What you've seen though is it, it's slightly different for a few of the countries. So let me sort of group them together. So Jamaica as an example, what they've done is they've got a lot of diaspora so a lot of players, for instance, who were born in the UK with Jamaican parentage, who've taken citizenship in order to be able to play for the Jamaican national team. And Jamaica were quite clever, certainly since the previous edition of the World Cup in 2019 in France, in really actively scouting some of those players who were playing in top leagues. So I can give you some examples like Drew Spence, who's currently playing for Tottenham Hotspur, was Chelsea before she became a national team player for Jamaica although she developed over here in the UK. So plugging into diaspora is one of the things that a team like Jamaica have done. Uh, And then 
what you've seen with other countries like Nigeria, which has traditionally been quite a football superpower, and South Africa increasingly, is that a lot of their players have been moving to overseas leagues, good leagues in Europe, you know, again, playing in Italy, playing in Spain, these sort of top-level leagues. So, of course, that will naturally benefit the national teams because these players are used to high performance and the development environment that that produces. And then looking at Morocco in particular is is quite interesting because I think Morocco, this was their first World Cup appearance. So all the other teams that you've mentioned have actually been in the World Cup before, like Nigeria, Jamaica, etc. This was Morocco's first appearance at the World Cup. And to me, it was the culmination of a very well-structured strategy to develop women's football in that country. And you actually, even if you look at the men's game with their performance in the World Cup, Morocco as a country have really developed their football strategy across various lines. So the women's football strategy has been been in place for a number of years. They've done a great job developing pathways for their players. Plus, they've also got a club in Asfar uh, that is that is almost like their incubator for their national team. So if you look at the Morocco women's national team, about half of it is from this one club. So the players are used to playing with each other. They play together a lot. And then you've got the other part who are, you know, playing abroad. So they've developed the concept of effectively having a stable group of local players who've been developed together, extended camping. So they've played together a lot. They understand how each other kind of moves and plays. And then they've overlaid it with some good quality players who are playing in the sort of overseas leagues in Europe. So long, long story short, you know, it wasn't a surprise these teams did as well as they have. I think as well that the third area is a little bit of complacency from some of the European teams in particular around the quality in those African national teams. Nigeria's performance and strength shouldn't really have been a surprise. I think that if you look at the European competitions, particularly like qualification to Euros, like England, they play a lot of games against small European nations, smashing them eight, seven, seven, eight, nine nil. Um, probably in hindsight, they would have been better as part of their preparation, playing some more of these teams from Africa, from South America, and having tougher tests that would prepare them better, but also give them a better insight into how these teams play. Certainly now I think there's been this realization and, and recognition of needing to count them as serious competition. I know you have worked with a number of female footballers from outside Europe who are teenagers, rising stars, to apply to US universities and go through their programs as a way to continue developing, to be able to play professionally. Is that still a go-to pathway or has the, the talent development pipeline, whether it's in Europe and some of the countries you were just talking about, has it developed in such a way where that is not the best path for a lot of these athletes focused on going pro? That's a really good question. The, the picture's evolving. For, I would still say that the US college route or the the combining the playing with the education, I still think is super important across the board of women's football, whether you're playing at a top line club like a Tottenham or whether you're playing in a sort of amateur setup in one of the African countries. However, for the best talent now that comes from, for instance, the African continent, there are some opportunities to go into a professional environment at a younger age, at 18, 19, rather than going to the US college route. 
but that number is really is still a handful because the, the issue at the moment is that whilst there are some very very professional environments in in women's football and ones you can provide the right support systems for those players it's still a very very small number uh, there are a lot of clubs that are maybe thinking they can provide the right environment and support for the players but they really haven't got the resources to do so so it isn't always a good idea even if it's there is a a proposal there from a club in Europe for players to go to Europe I still think that the education piece that they can get by going to the US the quality the level of facilities and all the other sort of character development side of things is still a better option for a significant majority of the players but it is it is evolving can you talk about what you're doing on the technology side of your business to help identify and track talent because i think it's different from a lot of other agencies especially in women's football i don't know if what we do is is much different but just to give you a an insight so we have particularly in in africa where you still have challenges around video footage you still have challenges consequently around data we've tried to be proactive about it and implementing some of our own solutions so we have our own video capture method i, I don't need to give free advertising but it's one of the, the big three huddle picks a lot video we have one of those and then with that video footage then we run it through our own sort of in-house analysis system to help us to evaluate players to help us to flag up players who would be of interest and have our own sort of in-house database that we develop over time with players of interest and players that we want to track and ultimately that we want to sign to the agency. Again, I think the big difference with the women's game is that we all understand that it's like a startup and it's a growing business. And I think we all have a responsibility to develop the ecosystem and not just benefit from it. So we realized quite quickly that our database was probably something that would be beneficial for the players and something that we could also utilize with one of the product ideas we had. So we created a platform called the Brew Africa, which we launched at the beginning of this year. And essentially on it, we have a database of players who have decent academics and effectively we plug them directly or we try to plug them directly into the US college system for scholarships and, and other educational plus football opportunities. So that's something, that's a way we use tech to obviously help us to manage and identify a talent and also hopefully a way to provide opportunities for some of the talent. Going forward, I'm really, really keenly looking at how we can implement AI to help to streamline our talent ID process. If you see a, a player in country X like Namibia, and another player in a similar position in country Y, like Zimbabwe, and you're looking at the video footage, who, who is the better player? What metrics are you going to use to decide which player you consider to have more potential? So that's a very data-heavy, intensive thing, and it's something that AI can, I think, help us to streamline and develop better ways to select our players. Yeah, well, and to do it much more cost-efficiently than has been possible up to now. Yeah. Certainly. I, I feel like just to step back for a second here, because uh, there's so many things I want to talk about uh, with you across all these different countries that you are monitoring. Where are you most excited about the development of the sport right now? 
are there certain markets that you see as the the most exciting emerging markets in the sport, either because of talent coming out of there and going to the top leagues or because of the development of their domestic league, whether it's in Africa, Europe, Australia? I think there are so many places where the, the women's game is developing super rapidly, both in terms of the talent, but also commercially. I mean, if we're very topical, Australia, the post-World Cup boost that they are having within the women's game. So the, the women's, the Australian A-League started this weekend, just gone. And I think Sydney had their opening game and they broke their attendance record with their opener. And I think that's the whole excitement. Post the World Cup, the Australian government have pledged, I think it's $200 million for the development of women's sports in Australia, really directly off the back of that sort of World Cup legacy. And the majority of that is going to go to football. I mean, they pledge it for women's sport across the board, but a big portion of that is going to go into football. So I'm very excited about that region. We established our Asia Pacific office actually earlier in the year ahead of the World Cup, anticipating that we would see some of that boost. And I think we're encouraged that it, it does seem to be coming through. And then in Africa, look, Ni Nigeria is the giant of the, the continent both in terms of population, you've got 200 million plus people in that particular country, but also the fact that it's a football mad country of 200 million plus people across the board. And um, the Nigerian Women's Football League have recently restructured the new chairman there in Ketchiobi, which he's doing some great work in actually finally getting some consistency and structure to the league. If they can get their act together on that side, which it looks like in Ketchi is definitely leading, the, the talent that will emerge, and that is what has already emerged out of the Nigerian League, but the acceleration in the talent that comes out of the league will be mind-blowing. I'm really excited to see how that evolves. The league starts next month. I think it's 15th of November. And there's lots of initiatives around that. And Ketchi's been very smart in that she's understood it's not just about the football product. She's also got a various sort of capacity building programs around the league. There's a program called Women Football Rising, which is about building capacity around the league, improving access for girls to play football, for girls to be referees and all the other kind of ecosystem around football. So, yeah, watch out for the Nigerian league. And then in Europe, the league that it's a small league, but I think is very interesting is Denmark um, in terms of talent. And also, I think at some point, in terms of future kind of financial power. So what it looks like is that from next season, so 2024-25 season, that the Danish Women's League is going to get a percentage of the TV deal that the Danish League effectively negotiates for the Superliga. So if you think of it in English terms, imagine if the English Premier League gave a percentage of their huge 2 billion plus football rights money to just to go to support the women's game. That's effectively what's happening in Denmark. So what that's going to do is give a real kind of stable foundation of financial support for all of the Danish women's clubs. It's always been a country that's been quite good at developing players, but it's still essentially a semi-professional league if you really dig down to the actual schedules and what the players do. I think that will obviously professionalise the league and make it a very interesting league, both in terms of talent and a good sort of stable career option for players. To jump back and start with Australia, can you talk more about the impact post-World Cup of what you're seeing 
whether it's from sponsorship deals, athletes are signing, salaries, uh, clubs are signing, and how much they're uh, willing to invest. What are the the metrics that you already see changing? Yeah, if we look at the, the usual metrics, people look at things like match attendance, so match day attendance. You've seen a, a big uptick in that already in terms of interest and in terms of actual attendances. I think the sponsorship, the commercial and broadcast stuff hasn't yet really plugged in, but I think that's, that is something that is going to come on board because now we see the obvious uptick in interest and general interest from the general public, then I think more of the sponsorship is going to come on board. The, the big first step, like, like I said, has been the commitment of state and government funds to support the women's game. And actually long-term, that's going to provide a bedrock of stable finance for the women's game to help it to grow and grow those aspects that we've mentioned on the commercial and the broadcast side. Certainly, sponsorship money chases audiences, right? So building the attendance, building the audience uh, comes first. Obviously, there's the investment challenge of you know, what it takes to do that, but certainly funding, whether it's public sector funding, funding that these clubs have, a lot of them having a men's team, is able to make that upfront investment when they believe in it. And certainly coming off of the World Cup when there are so many people primed to be looking for more women's football matches to attend is the time to make that. I'd say one thing though, it hasn't yet fed through yet to what I would call upward pressure on player salaries. But like I said, that's because it's like you said, the audience is definitely now clearly visibly increasing. So I would expect the sponsorship, the commercial interest to increase, and then we'll see the um, uptick in the salaries, which is, you don't always see that effect. In some markets, arguably over here in England, the salaries have gone up in anticipation of, I mean, the commercial and broadcast revenue has gone up, but the salaries have shot up more ahead of those particular revenues. But there's an anticipation that the next broadcast deal is going to be even higher and there's going to be bigger commercial deals. So Australians certainly seem to be a little bit more prudent in the way that they're growing the game. Yeah. What are the big barriers you see there or you know, Nigeria? A lot of growth, a lot of great momentum. What big barriers need to be overcome to really break through to the next level? The word is always stability. So stability in terms of the competition. If I use Nigeria as an example, we've had so many additions and iterations of the, the Nigerian Women's League. So how do you develop a brand and a product when it's the dates of the league change, the, the, the format of the league changes all the time? So there, there's got to be some sort of stability around the competition structure. There's clearly got to be financial stability. Now, I use stability rather than sustainability very carefully because when you've got a, a nascent sport or a nascent sports business like this, you're not going to be breaking even. You're not going to have that. But what you can have is a plan and a strategy around growing the leagues and, and growing the teams. And with that has to be underpinned with some sort of investment. So that's the challenge that I think a lot of women's leagues are having right now, that there's a great opportunity that a lot of people and everyone agrees is there in women's football and women's sport in general. Everyone agrees it's going to grow because the audience is growing. You've got more participation across the board, even from young women all the way even to, to older fogies like myself. But it still needs to 
have the oil in the system to drive it. It needs to finance. You need the structure. You need the stability to make that happen. And I don't see at the moment a lot of hard cash on the table for that. I'm citing the Australian government because for me, they're a shining beacon and example of that. But there's so many areas where there's a lot of words, a lot of excitement, but where's the plan and where's the actual investment is the question. How does the opportunity and challenges for Denmark fit within this? So Denmark is a very interesting one. And the reason for Denmark is interesting is for a number of reasons. Firstly, very accommodating rules around foreign ownership, which I think will encourage capital investment into that country. And you've seen that a lot. There's been a lot of investment from foreign owners into the Danish men's leagues in particular. But the the season schedule in Denmark is actually in line with the rest of Europe. It doesn't follow the Nordics. So they've been very smart about positioning their league and their product to to give themselves the, the, the biggest access and the biggest attractiveness to the wider football world. So I think that the question will be for the other Nordics, maybe, is how they could maybe integrate into the football calendar. Because there is an idea that there could be like a Nordic league. Because I think one of the areas in women's football where we can look at is, look, we haven't got these long traditions, you know, of was it, whether it's, you know, clubs, whether it's leagues and, you know, these sort of competition formats. So I think we can be more creative in terms of how we establish these competition formats and maybe make them better suited to the particular audiences out there. So the idea of having a Nordic league is one that I think might be quite an interesting one with the main big teams in all the Nordic countries. But then you've got the slight issue that the fact that Denmark is the one country in the Nordics that is out of sync with the rest of Nordics. But I think most of these challenges can be surmounted. If you look at the States, the NWSL is out of sync with the rest of um, European football because it also runs along a similar calendar to the Nordics. Yeah, which I think is a challenge. I, I know there is debate um, here in the States about should that should that calendar be adjusted in order to better compete and operate on the same schedule. Talk to me about Japan, obviously really strong national team, strong and developing domestic league. Saudi Arabia is now spending money to build out a women's league, obviously not to the same extent dollar-wise or, or pound-wise that they're on the men's side, but putting meaningful money there. Latin America, Mexico has a very strong domestic league with strong attendance. What are some of these other countries to be paying attention to? And who do you see rising up to challenge at a competitiveness level? England, France, Spain, NWSL, um, the existing top five or six leagues in the sport. Look, I think if we're talking about a sleeping giant of an area, then it's going to have to be South America. And you've got powerhouse nations like Brazil, Colombia, who, even if you look at, if we go back again to the Women's World Cup this summer, Brazil, unfortunately, had an early exit. But the country, as a football country, we all know that it's absolutely football mad. If you actually look at the current Libertador race, so that's the South American equivalent of the Women's Champions League, say we have over here in Europe. That's going on at the moment. The semi-finalists, three out of four of those semi-finalists are Brazilian teams. Yeah. So you can see that that, that football fandom and you know, that madness about football is something that's now coming over into the women's game. And I really think that 
that is a region in general which has been overlooked a lot where there's a huge amount of talent and there's a huge amount of commercial opportunity as well in terms of them growing the game. If you're looking at the growth in terms of which league is probably going to be significant with regards to the funds that they're going to be able to invest in the game, then you can't really avoid Saudi Arabia. You mentioned that the, their investment in the women's game clearly is not is going to be nowhere near what they're investing in the men's game. But I think as a percentage, it is actually going to be pretty similar. So what I mean by that is they're in their second year with the, the Women's Premier League. This year, they've already started to bring in foreign players and at the salaries some of those foreign players are able to command, uh, put them on a par with some of the best tier one clubs here in Europe right now. And they haven't yet got what I would call a, a marquee women's football player yet. I think next season, that's going to be their next move. A bit like they did on the men's side. They always had foreign players in the men's league for a number of years, but then they got Ronaldo over and the, the numbers were silly. And everyone thought that was a flash in the pan. But then look what happened this summer. They have just gone in and just brought in players on huge salaries. I think they're going to do something similar on the women's side. I think there's, that's going to be the next big move that they do to develop their own league, but also to pump a lot of money into, into the women's game in that particular region. So there's lots of debate around whether Saudi being involved in a women's game is a good or a bad thing. I'm not really going to go into that debate. I'm just looking at the facts of the situation that they will make big moves in the women's game. And, and that's something that I am very sure about. Putting aside some of the ethical debate of, of certain countries' involvement, from a fan culture standpoint, we've seen women's football develop earliest and strongest in effectively the most liberal countries that have strong feminist movements, et cetera. As it is, is becoming more popular, talent is rising up across a much broader scope of the world. How do you think about culture in terms of feminism, comfort with seeing strong female athletes and people wanting to attend those matches as a function of the league's ability to grow, right? Just in terms of attracting fans and through that enough sponsorship and other funding. Yeah, I think what we obviously need to understand is that a fan culture, like you say, is is different wherever you go. So you're right, the, the fan culture you've talked about, particularly around the common themes of you know, gender equality, as an example. That's been a theme that runs through the development of women's football, undeniably, wherever it's developed. And actually, that theme of gender equality is something that has underpinned fan culture, wherever you look. But then you see variations from that sort of, I would say, that sort of central point. Over here in the West, I think, say it's, you know, women's football, if you're kind of putting personas on the women's football fan, generally speaking, they're more liberal, they're more progressive, uh, and they're generally speaking unencumbered by traditional viewpoints. But when we go into the Middle East and a lot of the markets where we work, it's what the women's football brings is an opportunity for girls or women to have a new social outlet to be able to express themselves, as well as the gender equality piece. So that fan culture is slightly different to maybe what you might feel or what you might experience, for instance, at Angel City. But it's still as valid 
in terms of as a enriching and a progressive experience, I think, for women. And likewise, I keep going on about Brazilian fans, but when I was at the World Cup, I went attended one of the Brazilian women's games and the fans were absolutely incredible. The drums, the dancing, the party vibe, very different to the games that I would attend, say, over here in the UK, in England. Or maybe I think we're just a bit more buttoned up or whatever, but it's a totally different culture and environment. And that's what I love. And I think that's what's really important for us as great kind of advocates or believe in the women's game. I think we've, we've got to be open for the game to develop in many different ways and to embrace all the different kind of richness of culture that we should expect. I think there is a tendency for a little bit of gatekeeping around the women's game, saying, you know, I've, I hear many kind of people talk about women's football and they say things like the right people should be involved or we want, you know, a certain type. Well, they sort of imply that they want a certain type of people with a certain set of values to be involved in the women's game. But I think we have to be a broad church and the whole strength for the women's game, I think, is about being inclusive and actually accepting different viewpoints and, and a, a wide range of cultures. There's a tension here. Obviously, uh, a lot of women's football organizations have had a very problematic history in terms of abuse, disrespect, especially by male leaders, trainers, coaches, etc. in the past. And so there is deep fear of, of people coming into the sport who don't don't respect women, particularly as more money comes into it, right? Are seeing it purely through money signs and not giving it the respect it deserves and respecting the athletes. And to your point, football is a global sport. Different countries, different cities have different demographics here. And so I, I think that's part of the excitement too of how we're going to see as an entertainment experience women's football produced, right? We're still so early in women's football as a live event production, defining what are the traditions, what do matches look like, what is the fan experience and the different expressions of what that will be across different cities and countries. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like I said, I think we don't need to encumber ourselves with the traditions necessarily of the men's game. You can be a club brand, you can do things totally differently. And in a lot of cases, you're not going to have the same nature or that's not the way we used to do it. And the real pushback, I think that's why a lot of sports properties, particularly here in Europe, are inherently quite conservative. Because they have this fan base that, you know, a lot of fandom is really deep-seated. Again, I go back to, I would say that, you know, for me, I'm a relatively open-minded person, etc. But when it comes to Tottenham Hotspur as a club and the club that I have followed from the age of five, I'm very, very kind of, not conservative, but anything new that gets suggested there is always my initial gut reaction is like, oh, what's going on here? This looks a little bit different. This isn't quite what I'm used to. So I think women's football has the advantage that you, there, there isn't that sort of legacy as much. I know we've got the same club names and the women's teams there, but it, it's not the same. And we should leverage off that. That's where the opportunity is. We try and do the same things and replicate the men's game. We're just going to get the same outcome. And when you go to sustainability, that old thing, women's football should be sustainable. Well, tell me how many men's clubs are sustainable? Not that many. How many men's clubs outside of the MLS actually can break even at the end of the season? Every, anywhere across Europe, pick a country, I'll show you a club that's losing money. So um, the big challenge for us is to really 
get ahead, like you touched upon the women's football, what what will that mean? What does that look like when it's the, the game? What does that look like in, in other spheres, the digital sphere we haven't really talked about, but I think there's huge opportunities there and you don't have the same friction as you have in the men's game trying to put implement some of this stuff. I'm not saying though it should be some like experimental test bed. Let's let's just experiment on the women, see how it goes. We've gone down that road before, like artificial pitches, for instance, they try to make the players play on in the 2019 World Cup before the players push back. But there's a fine line between, you know, needless experimentation and innovation. And I think we want to tread that line. And if we go with the wrong side every now and again, I think that's something we should be willing to live with. Let's talk about player trading. You're an agent, so this is very core to what you think about all day and and how your business runs. Um, How is the global player trading market developing? Yeah, absolutely. The player trading market is definitely coming to life, I would say, across the board. What I mean by that is, if I let's draw us back five years. So five years ago, really, it's it was almost unheard of for a transfer fee to be paid for a female player. A lot of the contracts are still very short, you know, one-year contracts, season to season. There's no contract value effectively in terms of transfer fees. Then you started to see a change clearly led by the bigger leagues like England, where the investment in the league, both from the FA, but also with the improved TV rights deal, improved commercial deals, you're starting to see clubs start to pay transfer fees. And what that also had was a knock-on effect where countries are almost seen as feeder countries. So if you go back to the Nordics, like Sweden, it's always been a bit of a feeder country. Some of the top talent from Sweden goes into the WSL. So the clubs started to get more savvy around the contracts of offering players. So now they're offering players two, three-year contracts so that when the club comes in from the WSL, then actually there is a transfer fee to be paid to release the player from the contract. So very quickly now we've got a situation of, I think, negligible transfer fees to, you're talking tens of thousands of dollars transfer fees being fairly typical now. That doesn't really, I don't, that doesn't really raise an eyebrow, I would say anymore, particularly in the top European leagues. And for the best talent, it's six figures. And again, there's not so many price points there as in terms of transactions done, but definitely for the better players now, 100,000 plus is a transfer fee that a number of teams would not balk at. What's interesting though is you've got the international transfer market. So like I said, you've got, if you imagine it, you've got feeder leagues that feed into top markets like the WSL and also I think NWSL clubs pay some fees. But within certain jurisdictions, you've got your own internal market. So Again, if I use Africa as an example, I've got players that have moved from very small countries. So I had like a Zimbabwean player. Like Zimbabwe is probably one of the lowest leagues in terms of financial resources and player conditions to Zambia. And that still generates a few thousand dollars transfer fee within that domestic market. Likewise, any player that would move into one of the African teams that is playing the CAF Champions League so again, the African continent's equivalent in Champions League for the best clubs. There's a market now that's developed around those clubs will pay transfer fees and maybe 5000 10000 type dollars for players 
uh, to sign those players in order to then be able to compete in the top continental tournament where you have a prize money pool of up to like half a million dollars for the teams. So you're seeing like the regional transfer market develop and then obviously overlay that you've got the bigger kind of international transfer market. And I would be really, well, look, I'm not even going to be surprised. I am going to predict within the next five years, we'll get our first million dollar transfer fee for a player. Some would say I would say that as an agent, but it just in terms of the way the market's been evolving so quickly, that that is something I'm sure will happen within the next five years. It, it does seem we're on pace for that. And I think it, from a commercial development standpoint, it speaks to the player trading side of of a football club, right? On the women's side, building as a business. There are lots of men's football clubs who make a, a core part of their revenue is identifying young players, developing them, and then trading them to the bigger clubs for a large sum of money. The amount of money has not been that meaningful on the women's side uh, for that to really be a business that you're uh, building. But that's starting to change, right? And particularly once we're getting to million dollar transfer fees, that does start to become very real. Lindy, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you. Listen, thanks for having me again. If anyone wants to hit me up, you can just email me directly, lindy at ccsportsmanagement.com. I know as an agent, sometimes the view is that we speak in forked tongue and have horns, but for most of the agents I've come across in the women's game, we are really invested as well in adding the value, increasing the value of the game and making it therefore more stable and ultimately more sustainable. But let's first get the plan and the investment in place. And that's something that we want to drive as well. Thanks for listening, everyone. Suggestions for future guests or topics are welcomed. So please reach out. To keep up with upcoming episodes, subscribe to the show in your podcast app. And join our community newsletter at womensfootballgroup.com slash netprofit. The newsletter includes additional resources and commentary.